Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Seip preaches a message called House of the Lord, focusing on Psalm 122. We hope you find this message valuable and encouraging. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 122, just the first verse, Psalm 122.1. This is the word of God to us this morning. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning. Thank you. We're all familiar in these days with the somewhat alarming statistics that identify America as declining in the percentage of people who view themselves as religious and who attend church regularly. And hardest of all to attract to the church are the millennials, those born between the early 1980s and the early 2000s. It's often said that millennials are not interested in traditional forms of worship, but instead are motivated by social media and other non-traditional forms of religious involvement, like small gatherings in coffee shops, if they are even interested in God at all. And we're told that the church needs to adapt to the interests and forms of communication acquired by the millennials to attract them back to church, that somehow the generation needs to be communicated to differently than any preceding generation, that times have changed, the people have changed, their needs have changed, and we're told that the internet was a a game changer for the millennials and somehow what is defined as traditional church conducted inside four walls with hymns of the faith and a a pastor that expounds the word of God exegetically has lost its appeal. That a need for face-to-face community and personal involvement has been overtaken by the impersonal appeal of social media. The question for many today is, where can God meet me? Not where can I meet God? But David, David in our Psalm, saw things differently. God was a, David was a wanderer among the mountains. He was isolated from society. Then he mourned for his God. He said, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I have gone with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. This psalm that we began this morning is entitled, David Professes His Love for the Church. And how he does love it. And all Israel loved the sanctuary in their exile. They hung their harps upon the the willows, as scripture reminds us, and, and wept, remembering Zion. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I go, do not remember thee. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. 
if I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. We seem to be very much afraid of excessive devotion to the church in these days, as if somehow our Lord were disparaged by that devotion. But in reality, there's no danger in that. The bridegroom is not jealous for his bride. We please him when we sing, I love thy church, O Lord. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. If we reason, if we have reason to love the church, it's because it's the peculiar place of the Lord. And this fact appears in many of its titles that we find, the Church of God, the Abode of Christ, the City of the Living God, the Holy Hill, God's Building, God's Husbandry, the Household of God, the Mountain of the Lord of Hosts, a City Not Forsaken, the Lord's Portion, the Spiritual House, place of God's throne, the temple of the living God. It's true that our infinite God does not dwell in temples made of hands. That is to say, his presence is not exclusively there, and yet his promise to manifest himself there in a peculiar way. Indeed, the supreme importance and significance of the church is due to this fact. It is Bethel the house of God. And its history could be written, I think, in a, a series of theophanies or divine appearings. So let's call them chapters of a book. And let's start with the first chapter. The verse that says, And Abel brought of, his, of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto his offering." Genesis 3, 4. And Abel obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts in Hebrews eleven four. The blood streaming over the altar testifies to the coming of Christ, and the voice from heaven assures the worshiper of the divine presence and approval. And God is there, and that to bless him. And then the second chapter of our, our book, the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee in Genesis 12.1. In obedience to that voice, the patriarch went with his household, journeying along the banks of the great river, heading the heeding the divine guidance in building altars wherever he went, and how jealously the angels must have guarded his tent, for within its fluttering curtains was the seed and the promise of the universal church. And the altars which the patriarch built as he passed on were memorials of his faith in the coming Christ and the voice gave constant assurance that God was with him. And then the third chapter. And we begin that with the verse, 
And Jacob dreamed, and behold, a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood above it and said, Behold, I am with thee. And Jacob awakened out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And he called the name of that place Bethel. And he reared a pillar and said, This stone shall be the house of God in Genesis 28. And then chapter 4, the verse that says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Let the children of Israel make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them in Exodus 25. This was under the shadow of the flaming mountain at the giving of the law. And the tabernacle was then constructed, was after the pattern which God had, had showed Moses on the mountain and its plans and specifications were all divine. Its posts and its curtains and its rings and its staves and spoons and, and dishes and loops and flowers and candlesticks and snuffers were all made after the divine pattern that God had given. And you see, the importance of this single description is shown by the fact that it occurs, occupies more space in the Bible. That description of the tabernacle occupies more space in the Bible than does the creation of the world. It was, as has been noted, a little spot enclosed by grace out of the world's great wilderness. At its doorway stood the brazen altar with blood streaming over it, and within its holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, above which rose the Shekinah, or the luminous cloud, which was the perpetual token of God's presence. And then chapter 5 of our book, and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of Egypt, that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. This was the house that was built without the sound of hammer or axe, as you recall. No workman's steel, no ponderous axes swung like some tall palm the noiseless fabric sprung. 185,000 workmen were employed on this magnificent edifice, and it was seven years in building, as in the tabernacle, its architecture with all of its buildings were after a divine pattern. It was not finished, however, until the Ark of the Covenant was brought into that space. The king sat in Solemn state at its dedication. The great altar smoked with sacrifice. The Levites drew near with the sac sacred symbol of the holy presence, chanting, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and let the King of glory enter in. <clears throat> and then the cloudy presence, the Shekinah, filled the house so that the priests weren't able 
to minister because of it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I recall that that was the call to worship that D. James Kennedy, pastor of Coral Gables in Florida, used to use at the the start of every morning service. Chapter 6 of our book, a thousand years after the dedication of Solomon's temple, the disciples of Christ came together in an open court in Jerusalem and they were praying there. And strange things had happened. The, The Christ had come. He had lived and labored and suffered and died upon the cross. And at the moment of his death, when he cried, it is finished, the priest who was ministering in the temple on Mount Moriah saw the veil that hung before the Holy of Holies torn from top to bottom as by some invisible hand. The old economy with its types and shadows now passed away. The time had come for the rearing of a new and more glorious fabric on the old foundations, that is to say, the church of Jesus Christ. And while the disciples were praying in that open court in Jerusalem, Scripture reminds us in Acts 2-2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Thus the Holy Spirit came upon them. And amid the wonders of that Pentecostal occasion, the Christian church had its birth. And in the simplicity of its ritual were gathered up the sum and substance of all the elaborate ceremonial of the old Jewish church. All purification was briefly set forth in baptism. All sacrifices in the Holy Supper which memorializes the death of him who sacrificed once for all. And then the seventh chapter of ecclesiastical history is yet to be written. And the old dreamer on Patmos outlined it in prophetic vision when John, looking through the open doors above, saw the the new Jerusalem, the gates of pearls and streets of gold and sea of glass and multitudes of worshipers whose voice, as the Bible reminds us, was as a sound of mighty waters. And John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God in Revelation chapter 21. But there's still more. We love the church because it's the the rendezvous of saints. It's where saints come together. And that's where the tribes metaphorically go up. At the time of the great annual festivals, Passover, Pentecost, the tabernacles, and the thoroughfare in every direction were thronged with the multitudes who who journeyed to Jerusalem to to worship God. And they came from every part of the the Holy Land. There was Asher from the northwest with the, the sheave upon his banner. 
There was Benjamin from beyond the Kedron and Dan from the, the headwaters of Lebanon. And Ephraim waving his standard whereon there was horns of a unicorn. There was God, Gad from the fords of Jericho and Zebulun from the lake region and Naphtali, the, the doe set free, as scripture says. All these had their tribal quarrels and, and bickerings and marched under their own peculiar standards. But as they neared the holy city, and a sacred edifice, they folded all their banners and they bowed down in worship of their God. In like manner, the Christian church is divided into its various denominations, but we all under one protection of a common devotion. The Bible says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of us all. It was not only for worship, however, that the tribes were accustomed to seek the holy place in times of great danger from the heathen roundabout or from foreign incursion. They fled there for refuge. Jerusalem was almost impregnable. The mountains roundabout were natural fortifications, and the city itself was built, compacted together like a, a mighty citadel. You see, Zion is ever the defense of God's people. We may be weak in ourselves, but oh, what strength there is in that mutual prayers and sympathies of the, the great fellowship. What inspiration in the thought that we who are individually so weak and frail and fallible are held up in a mighty volume of universal supplication. And this truth, the millennials have yet to discover. No right living person who aspires to build character can afford to forego this privilege of cooperative help. There are those who suppose that the church is an association of persons who profess to be good, but indeed we are in the church not because we are ourselves perfect as though we lacked nothing, but on account of our conscious infirmity. We know that we cannot stand alone. We need the fellowship. And Celsus's famous assault uh, upon the church in his controversy with Origen many, many centuries ago, he said, you are a company of profligates, of avowed sinners, of publicans and harlots, did not your master say, I am come not to call the righteous but sinners? And Oregon answered, yes, the master did say, I am come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That is to the abandonment of sin, to a brave struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil, to the building up of character, to the life which is hid with Christ in God. We have the assurance of our Lord that being in this good fellowship and trusting wholly in his sustaining strength in answer to prayer, we shall be held as in the hollow of his hand and no man shall pluck us out of it. 
Here's the secret of the perseverance of the saints. God is in the midst of Zion, and her citadel is impregnable. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her. And still further reason for our devotion to the church is because it is the seat of spiritual power. The arm of the Lord is made bare in Zion for the deliverance of the world from sin. And two great pillars of the church, like Keshion and Boaz, which upheld the porch of the temple, are truth and righteousness. Truth and righteousness. The church is the depository of church, of truth. Where else have the great doctrines been formulated? We believe in a personal God. We believe in immortality, and life and immortality are brought together in light of the gospel of Christ. We believe in the incarnation. The incarnation has been formulated only in the symbols of the church. We believe in the atonement, which is the only rational plan ever devised or suggested for the deliverance of a soul from the shame and penalty and bondage of sin. And these are sublime truths touching the solution of problems which reach out into the eternal ages. And for the formulation of these truths, the world is indebted to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of them rest upon the scriptures, which are her peculiar heritage. The world is to be saved by the foolishness of preaching, and the center of all preaching is truth. And this is the Archimedean lever, if you recall, from the mathematician from many, many centuries ago. That lever which is to lift the world toward heaven, and its fulcrum is the throne of God. But still, the other pillar of the, the church is righteousness. And righteousness is obedience to law. The summary of the world's ethics is the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, and they are peculiar possessions of the church. And these furnish the basis of Christian character, beginning with a portion pardon of sin through the blood of Jesus. And we proceed to edification, which literally is temple building. It's the work of God's Spirit to, to build character by the laying of grace upon grace, until we pardon sinners shall, under his gracious influence, grow unto full stature of manhood in Christ. The sum total of spiritual power is comprehended in these two, truth and righteousness. If we seek the great energies of nature, we'll find them not amid the roar of the tempest of the, the rumble of earthquakes, but in the silent operation of air and light. By the forces of the atmosphere, the, the mountains are being slowly, surely torn apart, and the sun sends forth its influence far and wide so that nothing is hidden from its heat. It holds the planets in their orbits, swings the tides to and fro, and, and ripens the harvests. 
and thus truth and righteousness are calmly at work in the spiritual province and are destined ultimately to restore the world to God. If these things are so, it behooves all Christians to be loyal to the church. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're told. They shall prosper that love thee. For my brethren and companions' sake will I now say peace be within thee. Is it not an uplifting thought that we are embraced in that great fellowship which under various names the whole world over is engaged in the, the worship and the service of our common Lord? In great cathedrals, in country churches by the crossroads, and under the banyan trees in pagan lands, they're bending at this moment in devotion to him. Father God, enlarge our hearts so that our prayers may embrace them all. All who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. All who abide within the confines of the Holy Catholic Church. And what of those who live outside? Is it not a dreary thing to stand alone in the, the great struggle of life? To cling only to social media? To feel that you have no part nor lot in this great brotherhood? This cooperative guild of prayer and sympathy? The ancient mariner speaks of his weary years of wandering in that way. A wedding guest, this soul hath been alone on a wide, wide sea. So lonely twas that God himself scarce seemed there to be. But the days of his loneliness are over. He's found the pleasant companionship of God's people and with its strength and comfort unspeakable. Oh, sweeter than the marriage feast, tis sweeter far to me to walk together to the kirk with a goodly company. The doors of the church are wide open to all who have accepted our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and friend. And we journey to the place where the Lord has said, I will give it thee. But come, millennial, with us. Come, wanderer, friend, and the church will do you good. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have come before your throne and opened your word together, we pray that your Holy Spirit has touched us in a way that we can see that you are our companion here upon this earth. The church that you have created is a special place of common bond, that it is good that we are here to worship, it is good that you are here in your presence, that we can come in common sympathy, that in our frailness we can find victory and strength among each other. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that for those who have found the church to be obsolete, who have lost their way, 
Let them feel as David did, who mourned upon the hills, that he was no longer in the presence of others who were going to the tabernacle to be with you. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this church building, for this assembly and this congregation of believers. And we pray, Father God, that those on the outside will find their way in because it is a dreary place to stand alone with the great struggles of life. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.